If you have your Bibles, take them and turn in them to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be reading just a section of that in a minute. As you're turning there, just uh, something uh, of passing. My wife and I were able to spend um, a Friday evening with our new granddaughter. Uh, we had a new granddaughter born uh, just about a week ago. Her name is Benny Marie. And uh, she came in at uh, about uh, nine pounds, six ounces, I believe. She's a, uh, yeah. She's a beautiful little girl, so now we have eight girls and two boys, and uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, a lot of fun, though. Uh, if you're visiting with us or haven't been here for a while, we're working our way through uh, Genesis, uh, particularly the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and uh, they're helpful. They are foundational. They are the sort of beginning truth of revelation to us from God. If you've been following with us or with us, remember that the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 to verse 2, 3, is really an emphasis on God's creation of the heavens and the earth. His power, the name Elohim, is used to describe God, his majesty, his power, his transcendence in creation. And as we zeroed in on that creation, though, we found more and more that God went from the universe to the earth to creating a habitation for man on the earth. The implications of working through Genesis chapter 1 in our lives are, are not as directly personal as, uh, as they can be. We can remain a little detached from, yeah, we might have a, a few conversations with others about a different cosmology or a different way in which the world came into being, but there's not the same personal feeling or impact we feel from those as we do when we get to chapter 2. When you get to chapter 2, starting at verse 4 and then work your way to verse 25, you're immediately confronted with words that have consequence, words that really strike home to the very heart of the world in which we live and the very issues that we are challenged with and faced with personally and even amongst our families. At these uh, few verses, verses that we are looking at, and particularly the ones this morning, they're center of so many issues that we face and that we fight against. Issues of uh, marriage and of gender, of divorce and of abuse, roles in marriage, roles in the church, sexual relations, relational conflict. As I was thinking through these verses, next to these, um, next to the gospel, which has also come under incredible attack, these few verses themselves, I think, are next in the amount of controversy and difficulty they stir up in the lives of God's people and the world in which we live. Eight verses. I counted the words in English from the English Standard Version, 226 words, and yet they turn our worlds upside down. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God, uh, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If you were listening as we read those verses, you very quickly see the intimate connection of God with the creation of man and woman in chapter 2. And in fact, the name change that takes place at verse 4 of chapter 2 is significant, where we go from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim, a name of God which reflects his personal involvement, his personal connection to the people that he has made and created. As you read these particular verses, you find that right away the work of God is front and center. He initiates all the work in creation of man, all the work in the creation of woman, and in the definition of how that relationship should be formed. Simply, you can note the numerous God-initiated verbs in this particular section of Scripture. We're reminded of God's bountiful provision for man and for woman. As we look at these verses, there is a lot in them. And my hope is to just sort of lay out the groundwork for them, to give a general overview of them, because I want to also then go through the rest of the Bible and to show you how important these few verses are to theology of marriage, theology of the church. And uh, so we will do that. So as we come then to these texts, the provision of God for his creation continues. First of all, the Lord's provision for Adam. You read these initial verse in verse 18, and it's rather startling because to this point we have read again and again after God had created something that it was good. And we come to this particular verse and in this particular uh, place, and this, the text in the Hebrew language actually begins with the phrase, not good. It's as though it is emphasizing this reality that God has now made everything. He has made Adam and uh, he's not yet finished, but as he stops there, there's going to point that he's going to make. But before he makes that point of Adam's need, he said, this is not good. It's not good for a man to be alone, for this man to be alone. This is all God. This is God that notices this. This is God that brings out this reality. This is God that makes this statement. It's not that Adam comes to God at some point in creation and says, you know, before Eve was there and says, God, this isn't really great. I'm feeling kind of lonely here. It's God who points out the fact and makes the statement that it's not good for man to be alone. God knew what he was doing. God understood the necessity of the completing reality of uh, a man that fa is found in the provision of a woman and the woman of a man. His declaration is there's something lacking. Creation is not yet complete. There was an aloneness that needed to be addressed. And as we think through this, there's a reminder here, even as we work through these few verses, that it is necessary and it is beneficial and that God intended that, uh, that we thrive as male and female in relationship. Remember, Genesis chapter 2 is still before the fall. It's still before sin entered into the world. And so what we're described here in these verses are God's creational intention for mankind, how we were to exist and how we were to function in the world throughout eternity in this perfect relationship with male and female. And the means for 
man to fulfill the mandate that God had given, the blessing of, of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, the only way that could take place was through an equal partner, the woman. And as yet, that woman had not been created. The animals had been set about their task. They had been blessed by God and given a mandate to fill the earth, and they were capable of doing that because the animals were created with different sexes. Man, though, could not obey God in his present state. He couldn't fulfill the mandate that God had given him. He couldn't receive the blessing that God had intended for him. He could do the first part. He could reign over the world. He could subdue the world. And we see him doing that in naming the animals. But he couldn't fulfill the first part, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God takes the initiative. He makes the declaration, it's not good for man to be alone, and he takes the initiative then to show why that is the case and how he's going to deal with it. And so he began by bringing the animals to Noah, or to Noah, to Adam. And he starts passing these animals in front of Adam. And this was part of God's passing on to uh, Adam this vice-regent role that he was take. God initially had been the one who named the earth and the sun and the moon, and now God is giving that authority to man. And so it's demonstrated that these animals come before man, pair after pair, one after the other, and Adam looks upon them, and he looks at their characteristics. He, he looks at what they, they are capable of. He has an intimate understanding of, of how they were created, what they're supposed to do, and he names them. This is not something that should bother us. It's not something that we should, well, how in the world did he do that in such a short period of time? I think there's a couple of things that we have to remember. One, that this was man in his pre-sin condition. This was man when his senses were at their height. This is man when he was perfect in every way. This was man when his brain was just, just massive, not huge brain, but just good brain. He's strong, he was fit. Uh, every part of him wasn't affected by sin yet. And it's not uh, beyond the ability of God to give him the understanding of that as well because we read of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, 29 to 34. Here's a portion of it. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. In other words, we couldn't fathom the wisdom that God gave Solomon. It just blew, it blows our minds when we think about it. And the breadth of mind, listen, the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. That is a massive intellectual capability that God gave to Solomon so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all wisdom in Egypt. This guy was smart. He was intelligent. He was intuitive. And he spoke also of the beasts and of the birds and of the reptiles and of the fish. If God could give Solomon that breadth of understanding, that vastness of mind, certainly Adam in his pristine pre-fallen state could have the ability to look at an animal and instantly understand it and name it appropriately. The point, though, of all of this, the purpose behind this process was to bring Adam to the realization that he was unique, that he was not like the rest. Some of you have grown up on that's a big bird. Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the rest. And as Adam was looking at these, he realized, I'm not like the rest of these things that God has paraded before me. There is uniqueness about him. And we understand that that uniqueness was he was made in the image of God. He was formed from the dust of the ground. He didn't come from an animal. 
And so as he realized this, he realized, and probably he realized these animals have mates. These animals can fulfill the, the mandate that God has given them, but I'm alone. I can't do that. And God was making the point to Adam. And as God walked Adam through the process, I believe that he came to realize that he did need a helper, that he couldn't do this on his own, that he couldn't go about the task of filling and multiplying so that the earth would become full. He needed help. And so God said, I will make a helper fit for him. As we read about God's provision, particularly now through a sinful mind and a sinful heart in a world in which there is become so much pain because of this reality. These words that we're about to read then are abrasive and they're hard to listen to. But originally as God made man and woman, it says that he made woman for man, that he made woman from man, that he gave woman to man and that woman was named by man. So what do we understand then? How should we at least go about finding our way through a helpmate fit for man? Again, at the end of this name that animal marathon, Adam recognized his need. There was nothing yet in creation that was a suitable match for him. Even right here, do you not see how the biblical explanation of the origin of the world and the universe and animals and mankind is so contrary to the narrative that you get from evolutionary development. In the evolutionary flow of things and worldview, man is just a higher being that came from lower beings and just evolved. Here we find, no, man is utterly different. He's completely different. Man is made in the image of God. Man is formed from the dust of the ground. He is not the, he is not the highest point of the evolutionary process so far. And so the biblical cosmology is so different from what we hear in the world around us. And what the scripture is saying here too is that man and woman are essentially equal in their human sameness. This cannot be said of man and any created animal. God had been preparing Adam for this moment. And again, through our sinful realities and our sinful context and the way that we have been hurt, these words incense many. There's not a chance that I will be a helpmate for any man. There's anxiety that is created in a woman's heart when they think there's not a chance that I want to submit my life in helping a man. And yet again, we are reminded that these verses were written before sin entered into the world. This was the ideal way that God had created us to function and to thrive in relationship. A helper was no trivial, life-squashing, personally annihilating relationship. Rather, it was one that is described in Scripture in various ways. A helper is an extraordinarily strong word in the Old Testament. 16 of the 19 times the word is used, it's used to describe God's action with man. God is the helper of Israel. God is the helper of Israel against her enemies. It's a very real help. It's very needed help. It's help with which, without which one would be at loss. This is no weak or constrained woman that God is describing here in Genesis chapter 2. 
She is called Adam's helper, which defines the role that the woman will play in the biblical model. The helper is an indispensable partner. What man lacks, the woman provides. What woman lacks, the man provides. They were made to be intimately connected, the same but different. The emphasis of God in the garden was one on complementarianism. A helper fit for him, like opposite him, according to his opposite, she would be both like him and unlike him. She would be his complement mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. The difference would be that they would complete each other. A matching opposite that she would supply what was lacking in him. This is no demeaning role. This is no derogatory role. This is a wonderful union of a man and a woman made for each other. And God supplied a woman made from man. Again, not from the dust of the ground, not a separate creation, but made out of the man, out of a rib in his body. It's a surgical act of God. This doesn't mean that the point being here is, is simply that they're not two different creations, but there's a oneness, there's a unity that comes from this intimate connection. They are one and the same, but they are different. This work of God is described in five phrases. The first phrase is that he caused a deep sleep to come on Adam. It's almost like an anesthetic sleep. It's a supernatural sleep. It's the same kind of sleep that Abraham experienced when God put him to sleep and established the covenant with him. It's the same word that's used to describe the deep sleep that Jonah was in when he was asleep in the boat when that massive storm was, uh, was throttling the boat. And so God caused a deep sleep. It's like he didn't want Adam to see the process or know the process. It's almost like he wanted Adam to wake up and all of a sudden see God's provision for him but nonetheless, God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam. And then he took a rib out of Adam's side, a rib. I, I don't think it, it's describing that he took the side out of Adam, but he, he took one rib out of many. And it's not that men are short a rib today. Um, Adam would have been short a rib, but the rest of us are not short a rib. <laughs> but God took this rib the same substance from man. He closed up the flesh in its place and then he took that rib and he formed from that rib a woman. God the builder, so to speak. God the creator. And then he brought her to the man. He presented her to the man. Neither man nor woman was made out of nothing. Man was made from the dust of the ground. The woman was formed from the rib in the man. Same flesh, same blood. And then we read that God gave her to Adam. This gift of God to Adam addressed the not good. It addressed the loneliness that a man would have been about trying to fulfill the mandate which would have been impossible without a woman. God made his point, and now what was not good is very good. You sort of have a picture here of the very first wedding. It's a beautiful picture of God 
taking Eve in his arm and walking up to Adam, the father of the bride. In fact, Adam is called the son of God. So you could see God walking Eve to Adam and saying, here, Adam. I think it's probably what's behind the um, part of what we do in weddings now is the father often walks his daughter down the aisle and gives her away. I think Adam got the point. You get that when you read his words there. It's this exclamation, this, this stunning realization, this, this all of a sudden after he realized that looking at all the animals, it says at the end of that, and there was none suitable for him. And all of a sudden God presents him with a woman and he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's exhilaration there. There's wonder there. There's awe there. Calvin put it this way. He says, Now at length I have attained a suitable companion who is part of the substance of my flesh and in whom I behold, as it were, another self. And Adam named her woman. Notice man and woman combined in the name of the woman. Distinct yet separate different yet the same. In Hebrew, it is Ish. Man's name is Ish, and woman's name is Isha. The name of woman is combined with the name of man, the same yet different. I was thinking of this as a practice that I don't think I'll ever do it, but I wondered just in my imagination that when I do a wedding, maybe part of the wedding ceremony should be a figuring out how those two names can go together and to give the couple a name. And so I thought of Kathy and myself, and I thought, well, our name would be Path. It's not a wonderful name, but um, it combines the names. So we're two distinct people, but we're in one name. And so then here, we have established then this beautiful relationship that was to exist. There's a foundation here that's set, which will be unpacked through the rest of the scripture. There's a foundation that's made for leadership. Man is formed first. He's given the command not to eat of the trees. He's the one that names the animals. And then Eve is given to him. There's the emphasis on companionship and equality, that they are both made in the image of God, that they are different but the same. There's the reality of their independence to one another. They can't fulfill the mandate on their own. God intended that man and woman together would receive the blessing of family and of the joys of family and of working together. And as I thought through this, and in the light of the way that progressive revelation unfolds, in the light of what we will look at in a couple moments, marriage is clearly voluntary. And if you're not prepared to enter into a relationship such as this, then you shouldn't get married. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the reality. God has established the boundaries of a marriage, what a marriage should look like, the roles within the marriage. That's where a marriage will thrive. That's where you'll succeed in a marriage. And if you aren't willing to do that, then you don't have to do that. I think that's a clear gift of God to us. But if you do enter into a marriage, understand that God has set the parameters for it. And so that was God's gift to Adam. What about the Lord's provision, though, and pattern and sequence for the world? Does this apply beyond Adam? Does this apply for the rest of humanity? 
is the marriage that's described here just for Christians, thus who follow the Lord? How do we know that? Well, we work it out from, uh, from Genesis 1 to 2 in the command to be fruitful and multiply. That can only take place in a male-female relationship. You have to have a male and you have to have a female. It's the only way that that can take place. Even through medical intervention, you still need a male and a female to fulfill that mandate. The blessing of God that applies to Christian and non-Christian alike is found and realized in a marriage relationship. We find that Jesus affirms marriage 2,000, 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, as he's having a discussion about divorce with uh, uh, some of the leaders of the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's the reality. God has made us male and female from the beginning when he first made the earth and put man and woman on. And there he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Jesus affirms this as a creational intention for humankind. This is how we are to function. This is how we are to thrive in a marriage relationship, male and female. Again, remember, we're looking at primeval history here. We're looking at the history of mankind. When we look at Genesis 1 to 11, there's a pattern also here. And you see that pattern unfolded in the verses that we've looked at here. The pattern is male and female. The creational pattern for marriage is the creational pattern then also for sexual relations between a male and a female in the context of marriage. It's not good for man to be alone. How does that aloneness fulfilled? The aloneness is filled by God providing a woman. He made man and he made a woman. He called the woman who was taken, he called her woman who was taken from a man. A father and mother are their first relationship out of which then flow the following relationships of another young couple that come together. A man is to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The man and the wife were both naked and were unashamed. The pattern is clearly then revealed in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered into the world, that the pattern of a marriage relationship is male and female. Whenever we try and get out from under God's plan, when we try and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on our own and discern what is right for us, that we end up getting ourselves in so much trouble. The Bible's teaching about the source of marriage is clear. It's a gift of God. And the relationship in that marriage is clear between a male and a female. Well, I personally am convinced that the biblical description of marriage is a universal one. That monogamous heterosexual marriage was always viewed as the divine norm from the outset of creation. Not all believe in the Bible. Not all believe in the God of the Bible. Not all believe in the gift that God has given to us. And therefore, there are many who do not accept the biblical definition of marriage. However, if you are a follower of Christ, if you want to thrive in the relationship that God has established for you, 
then this is the only pattern for marriage. Monogamous, male and female, become one flesh. There's a sequence also that matters for the world. The pattern matters, but there's a sequence that matters as well. Not only is the pattern universal, but the sequence is also universal. But not all accept the sequence either. And as a result, there has become so much pain and hurt in the world in which we live because we have said, well, that sequence doesn't matter anymore. That's, that's a God of an Old Testament. That's a God of a Bible that I don't believe in and I don't believe in him. And therefore, I will go about how I will have relations in my own way. But he describes here the sequence of how God intends us to enter into this relationship. There's a leaving that is to take place. There's a separation. There's a, there's a new priority that it needs to be established in relationship. And so he says, a man shall leave his father and mother. The dominant relationship with, through which, into which you were born and under which you have submitted, the father-mother relationship now, you come out from under that and you enter into a new primary relationship with your spouse. This is important to understand that, that this leaving has to take place. And parents who don't let their young adults go into this relationship and young adults who do not make the husband and wife their go-to priority will struggle to thrive. You can't have parents involved unnecessarily trying to erode the dominant place of the marriage between their young daughter and son-in-law or however that might be without causing damage there. There's a necessary leaving that takes place and there's a necessary cleaving that is also described here. This is an amazing kind of word or reference that is used here, that this now is the dominant relationship. This now is the primary relationship. This new husband and wife together, cleave together. It's a, it's a word that describes clinging to. It's a word that some has described when you take two pieces of plywood and you glue them together it's impossible to separate them and keep them whole. That there will be splinters that will join with the other. There's this, this intense union that takes place, this intense joining. And that cleaving must be respected by parents. It must be nurtured by the couple. They must be protected as well by, by, uh, by their own um, determination and desire. And monogamy is clearly implied by this statement, leaving and cleaving. And then the result is one flesh. We leave, we cleave, we unite ourselves, and then we become involved in a one flesh relationship through which we experience the blessing of God through sexual relations, through having children, through having a family, through having a helpmate fit through us, a partnership, a relationship that is absolutely astounding. And we can fulfill the mandate that God has given us. It's within that context of a one flesh leaving and cleaving relationship that we fulfill the mandate that God has given us. One flesh, too, is not defined by sex. But sex is constrained by one flesh. The right place, one wrote, for the fire is the fireplace. If it gets round to the rest of the house, it's a disaster. Marriage is the context for sexual relations. Marriage is the gift of God, and it's the context for sexual pleasure and sexual freedom. 
The sexual act by itself does not exhaust marriage. Marriage entails far more than the sexual act. But sexual relations is to be confined within the marriage relationship. I find it helpful to work this through and trying to make sense of the Trinity and trying to make sense of the two natures of Christ. We know with the Trinity that God is one essence, three persons. It's amazing how three persons can become one essence. Well, Jesus Christ is two natures in one person. How is it that two completely separate natures can be found in one person? Well, in the same way, two people become one flesh. We don't lose our identity. We don't lose ourselves. but there's this joining, there's this intimacy, there's this connection that takes place where we become one and yet we remain two. It's an astounding thing that God has created. And when we leave and cleave and then become one flesh, there is incredible freedom. It says the man and woman were naked and they weren't ashamed. There was this wonderful realization that that was the relationship into which they were created for. These gifts of God, though, have been rejected, haven't they? The intensity of the attack on God and his word is considerable. We want to try and undermine the word of God. We want to rewrite the word of God. We want to reinterpret the word of God. We doubt whether God has actually spoken about these matters. The concept, the very concept of marriage is under attack today. What defines a marriage? What is a marriage? It's not a gift of God. It's a creation of mankind, and therefore we can change it and adjust it however we would like. The pattern of marriage is under attack, male and female. The sequence of marriage is under attack. Leave and cleave become one flesh. The sanctity of one flesh relations, sexual relations, is under attack. Try it out. Experiment. Find a partner. Have some fun. Enjoy the freedom of no-strings-attacked sexual relationships. The reality is, though, that again and again, it's been demonstrated that people who haven't slept together before marriage are less likely to split up. Recreational sex, hooking up, that is now what defines sexual relations in the culture in which we live, outside of the bounds of marriage, outside of the intention that God has created for. Divorce and remarriage now are just so frequent and so constant, uh, so constant in our society. But God has given us a pattern and he's given us a sequence, and it was established before sin ever entered into the world. And therefore, we can look back on it and say, this is how God originally intended that we should thrive and receive his blessing. And then just quickly jump into what the New Testament makes of Genesis chapter 2. I provided scriptures and I just encourage you to look through those. But the application of Genesis 2 is profound and it's woven throughout the Bible. Genesis 2 addresses the real life concern of, of a husband and wife together. 
how we function, how we relate. It addresses how the church deals with male and female in the church. And so for this age, how do we apply these things as we move forward into the present age now out of Genesis 2? Well, the gift of marriage still remains today. Genesis 2, 24 has not become irrelevant. As I've already read from Mark chapter 10, and you can read that, Jesus reiterated marriage some 4,000 years later. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is God's intention, God's created pattern, God's place for which we find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment as we pursue his ideal for us. It's between male and female, but from the beginning, Jesus said, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is to be honored. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor amongst all. That takes work. That takes conviction. That takes determination. That takes self-control. But this is what God intended. He intended that this marriage relationship be held high. It be spoken well of by ourselves and by others. And that it be protected. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's the boundary within which we have freedom. There's incredible freedom within the boundary that God has provided. There's incredible joy. There's incredible satisfaction. But outside of those boundaries is all kinds of hurt. Genesis 2 is also the basis for the New Testament teaching on the family and the church. This too is hard for us to understand through sinful eyes, but God had intended this not to be a burden, but to be a joy. For roles not to mean anything less than just these are functional ways in which we get along together. They say nothing about equality. They say nothing about worth. They say nothing about value. But God has given us roles by which we may function healthily and best with one another. And it's rooted from this order that is first described in Genesis. Man first and then the woman. Man was created first and then the woman. That's the foundation of establishing order within a marriage. 1 Timothy 2.13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. What Paul is doing is he's looking back to a time before sin ever entered into the world. He says this is the order of a leadership that God has established. This is the nature of the relationship that God had put together. Again, nothing about value, nothing about worth, everything about how we function best in the way that God has created us to function. First Corinthians 11, 2. And these are all such hot-button texts. I understand it. But it's important that you go back to Genesis 2 and realize where they come from. Paul is hoping to address problems in the church. And so in Genesis, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, part of that says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Therefore man was... Uh, Therefore, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The point is not to demean or devalue. It's just to establish the order that God has created, the best way to function within a marriage relationship. 
And then in Second or First Timothy, he's describing leadership in the church. And we understand that men are to lead in the church. It's a tough responsibility. I think sometimes people look at this and say, that's, just, you know, what? that's easy. It's not easy to lead. It's a privilege and it's a joy, but it's hard work. And so in the church, Paul affirms, not just Paul, but others affirm that males lead in the church. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. This is the established way that God says there will be order in the church. Again, it says nothing about value. It says nothing about importance. It says nothing about one is more in the image of God than the other. We understand that we're all made in the image of God, but we have to have boundaries. We have to have guidelines for how we function best. What about the age to come? The present age is we have this pattern for marriage. It's a pattern that forms our relationships within marriage and within the church. But what about the age to come? Marriage is this wonderful prophetic picture. And I think we lose sight of this sometimes because we get so caught up in it. But Paul, talking about marriage in such a beautiful way in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, talks about the relationship of a man and a wife and the wife and the man and what that's supposed to look like. But it's not just a physical, this worldly human relationship that's at stake. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you understand that when God first created man and woman in the garden, that perfect garden, he intended that that would one day portray the beauty and the mystery of Christ's relationship to his bride, you and I. It's a wonderful thing. It's not a humiliating thing. It's not a demeaning thing, but it's a redeeming thing. It's a grace-bursting kind of thing that this is a mystery. A profound mystery that refers to Christ in the church. Any one of you who is married today, Yours isn't just a physical relationship. You have an opportunity to your family, to others in the church, to those in the world around you to show what it looks like for Christ to love the church and the church to respond and submit to Christ. But also, marriage is a temporary gift. You say, well, Paul, you've just been wasting all your breath then for the last few minutes. Therefore, remaining single is an option. It's a biblical option. There's a shift that takes place with the coming of Christ, with the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. There's a text, and again, we won't read it all, but in Mark chapter 12, verses 19 to 24, there's a group of leaders that come to Moses and they present him with a scenario, a fictitious scenario, but they're, they're trying to catch Jesus in a, in, a, in a position that he can't back himself out of. And so they say, listen, there's this, there's this fellow and he marries a wife and he dies. And so the, the issue was that you had to continue the, to pass on the family inheritance in the family, keep it in the family. So he died and he had a brother. So his brother marries the woman and, and, and he dies and so forth for seven people. And so she ends up marrying seven people. They all died. And then they want to know, well, who will be married to her in heaven? Who could come up with that but somebody trying to trick somebody? And so Jesus answered to them in the end of it. Jesus said to them, 
Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, when the husbands and the wife rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That's just a profound mystery, but marriage is a this worldly reality. It's a this present age reality. It won't continue in the world to come. And I know that distresses those of you who have great marriage and you wonder, well, I, I've lost my wife or I've lost my husband and, and are we gonna be united in heaven as husband and wife? Well, no. It doesn't mean you won't know them. It doesn't mean you won't love them. It doesn't mean you won't recognize them. But it's not like you're gonna be married in the new heaven and the new earth. Paul also describes in another place the wonders of singleness. He says a single person can serve God without distraction. He says in one place, I want you to be free from anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And he says the same thing for a woman. He's saying it's okay to be single because as a single person, you can devote your time and your energy to serving the Lord. If you're married, there, you just bring into that reality worldly issues that you have to face and you have to deal with. Many of them are wonderful, but some of them are hard. In another place, he goes a little bit further and he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. It's good for them to remain single as I am. And then another place he said, so then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. The point simply is singleness is a biblical, wonderful option. And in fact, it is a preview of heaven and earth to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Having said all of this, let me end on this. I realize there has been incredible pain brought into relationships in our world because of sin. There's been pain in marriages. There's been pain because of the way that we have been raised. There's been pain because we haven't understood how we are to live together. There's been pain because we have chosen to go the opposite way of how God has instructed us to live. But I want you to hear that there's wonderful redeeming grace and mercy. There's entrance back into the garden, entrance back into the ideal that God has created for us. Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. That is... That is a word that should just fill your heart with hope and joy. But you are washed. The grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you are sanctified. And you are justified, made right, made acceptable before God by Jesus Christ and the Spirit. Unless we've betrayed the marriage 
boundaries God set for us. John chapter 8 describes this conversation between scribes and Pharisees who brought a woman who had been caught in adultery to Jesus, and they wanted to trap Jesus again. And they wanted Jesus to participate in condemning her so that they could stone her. And you know, at the end of it, the question Jesus posed to them was, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they sulked away. And Jesus said to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is wonderful redemption, wonderful grace, wonderful forgiveness. Loved ones, we are made to find fullness, to thrive and flourish within the boundaries that God has established for us. Let's find our path in the path that God has laid out for us. Father, Sometimes your word has more direct impact on our worlds and our lives than other times. At least that's the way we feel it and experience it. Father, we've covered just a ton of ground today. We've touched on issues from which our sin has resulted in so much pain, so much hurt, so much distrust so much combative conversations. And yet, Father, it's good to hear that it's not the way it's supposed to be. I pray that through grace and redemption, what may be fighting words in our lives and in our relationships may be turned back to good words and beautiful words. And we will reflect on your provision for us and say, wow, how beautiful, how blessed. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen.